This is a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. To begin my life with the beginning of my life, I record that I was born, as I have been informed and believe, on a Friday at twelve o'clock at night. It was remarked that the clock began to strike and I began to cry simultaneously. You just heard Nicholas Bolton narrating David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. It's published by Naxos Audiobooks. Audiophile Magazine has just launched a new podcast called Audiobook Break, where we serialize an audiobook presenting a new chapter three times a week. And we've begun with Nick Bolton's brilliant Earphones Award-winning narration of David Copperfield. Nick Bolton is an actor who does it all. Theater, film, television, video games, and of course, audiobooks. He has, quite simply, one of the best voices in the business, and his range is outstanding. His narration runs the gamut from Roman classics to 19th century German and Russian literature, from historical romance to modern classics to some of the great English novels like David Copperfield. I thought Nick Bolton's mesmerizing narration of David Copperfield was an amazing feat of acting, because the book is a sweeping story tracing the life of David from the time of his birth to his manhood, and it's filled with brightly drawn secondary characters from all walks of life. So when I spoke with Nick Bolton, I asked him how he prepared to narrate a book as monumental as David Copperfield. Well, the first thing you've got to do is take a very deep breath. So, <laughs> and, and then uh, read and read as much as you can and, and get a handle on, on all the different characters and the voice of the narrator and so on. Um, Dickens, it's pretty monumental stuff. It's big and it's long and the sentences are long and the ideas are long as well. But the characters are written so richly that it kind of does the work for you. And if you just open yourself to it and try and get into the head of each character and behind the eyes, you know, hopefully that uh, the end result is good. How familiar were you with David Copperfield before you narrated it? Reasonably. I mean, I think I'd read, I'd read it at school, but a long, long time before. And, and there have been various uh, adaptations of it done on screen and various, you know, in various ways. This was, of course, before the latest movie version, which I think is absolutely brilliant. I do, too. I think it's wonderful. You know, what I find interesting is that with an audiobook, you as the narrator have to read every single word, whereas a filmmaker needs to get to the heart of a book. Right. Much of the book is obviously cut, but it's the heart of the book that counts. Absolutely, yeah. I wonder, did you work with a director? Yes, um, Roy McMillan was my director, and he we recorded all of this. It feels like filming because the images are so rich, but we recorded it all in a little studio which sadly no longer exists up in North London, out in the in the back garden in this little cubicle, uh, soundproof cubicle. It took us, I think, about eleven days to complete it, and Roy would sit and and follow all my words and make sure he picked me up if ever I made a fluff or a mistake or whatever and give me occasional kind of nudges in, in different directions for the actual performance. And we work together, I think, very well, and, and, and I'm hoping that, you know, the end product shows that. Oh, my God, I think it's brilliant. 
And I love that book. And that leads me to my next question, because how do you take a character that's known like a David Copperfield or you recently played Sherlock Holmes uh, for an Audible production and Sherlock Holmes is very well known. So how do you take characters like that and characters that people are coming to with a certain opinion about them? Does that impact the way you approach the material? Well, strangely enough, not at all, because, I mean, you clearly can't please everyone. So I think the way I approach it is be true to the ideas and the, and the feelings that are provoked within me. And if I do that, hopefully that'll communicate to the listener. And th that's all you can do, really. You know, if you start worrying about what other people will think about various characters. Also, it's it's dangerous to, to fill yourself with too many references. For example, I think, oh... Who 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 was it who who played Macorber originally in the in the old movie? Absolutely fantastic. W. C. Fields. W. C. Fields. Thank you. I was hunting for the name. Of course, <laughs> W. C. Fields playing Macorber. Absolutely phenomenal. But if you have that idea in your head while you're trying to narrate it, then you're on a hiding to nothing. Well, you certainly did not imitate W. C. Fields at all. Though I have to say, as I was listening to you. A sort of pared-down physical image of him was running through my mind. Yeah, quite. I mean, there is a resonance there, you know, uh, and you can't escape that because he was lodged in my head, but you've got to try and distance yourself from it and be more true to the characterizations as you see them and as you feel them. Well, David Copperfield is written in the first person, and I wonder if that presents a set of challenges because you have David within the story... And you also have David telling the story. No, that's true. It's another character. It's fascinating, actually, just thinking about how the, the, the book opens. You know, the memories of childbirth by the baby who's being born. <laughs> so, but, you know, he's a character and, and he, he goes through an incredible journey of in many different, in all the different ways, physically and spiritually and mentally and, and everything from start to finish. And he's very engaging. And I love how observant, how the perspicuity of his observations is just magnificent. I agree. I completely agree. It's, it's so clear Dickens likes that boy. Um, yeah. And I think we come away seeing him in, in all his faults. He's hardly one dimensional, but he's so likable. And Dickens's second char secondary characters are so vividly drawn. Mm -hmm. uh, was it tricky deciding on those voices? It's not too tricky to decide on them because the writing is that the way they're written, it, the, you know, you, it's done for you. It's so long as you can, you have the, you know, the acrobatic equipment to deliver it. <laughs> you shouldn't get into too much trouble. The biggest problem is keeping a handle on. There are so many characters. You need to keep a handle on who is who. And of course, that's where your producer can help, you know, playing you back samples of what you did, you know, a, f a few days before and so on. This is where prep is really important. Uh, if you place one character and then discover that there's another character that is closer to that placement later on in the book, then you have, well, you've thrown yourself a curveball. So you need to read ahead and know who's coming up and where to position them all relative to each other. Well, as we've said, the book begins with the child narrating his own birth. And he moves through childhood, through adolescence, through young adulthood into middle age. And your voice has to reflect those changes as well. 
Yes. Well, listening back to it myself, uh, my voice was quite a quite a lot younger than it is now. I've aged considerably in the last uh, last few years, you know. But um, <laughs> yeah, you you need to be flexible enough. I think the key, especially when you're doing an audio book, is is not to push it too far. But at the same time, with Dickens, there are very broad characters in there. Well, Macabre is like the blusterer of all times, and his emotions catapult within a sentence. Did you have fun with him? Oh, a huge amount of fun. Huge. You can't not have fun with Macabre. He's such a wonderful, tragic, comic character, and everything that he speaks, he speaks truth, but it's so beautifully written. It's so funny. You just the, the, the difficulty is restraining yourself from laughing while you're recording it. My dear young friend, said Mr. Macawber, I am older than you, a man of some experience in life, and, and of some experience, in short, in difficulties, generally speaking. At present, and until something turns up, which I am, I may say, hourly expecting, I have nothing to bestow but advice. Still, my advice is so far worth taking that, in short, that I have never taken it myself, and, and the... Uh, here Mr. Micawber, who had been beaming and smiling all over his head and face, up to the present moment, checked himself and frowned. The miserable wretch you behold. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mr. Peggotty is also somebody who is like Macabre in the sense that he's a very broad character, but he has deep, deep sensibilities. So I would think you really wouldn't want to play up the broadness too much. Sure, sure. I mean, he's he's a broad Suffolk accent there and, and, and a, a maritime flavor to him as well. But again, as you said, Dickens creates subsidiary supplementary characters who are so human as well. And if you push them too far uh, to the extreme, then you lose the new human quality of, that, of those natures. What about the women's voices? Are they tricky early in the book, for example, like the first three chapters? We have distinct women's voices. We have David's mother, we have Peggotty, David's nurse, and then we have Betsy Trotwood, one of my favorite characters of all time, as Dickens' aunt. Yeah, sure. I mean, again, it's it's not really about gender impersonation. It's about character. And you just see the characters as Dickens has written them and allowed their voices to come, you know, to come out. And with any luck, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, technically, yes, there are things that you can do to soften your voice for a female character or make give her a, a, a harder edge if she's, you know, more of an embittered type of character. But generally, you just take the writing and, and allow it to do the work for you. Mrs. David Copperfield, I think, said Miss Betsy, the emphasis referring perhaps to my mother's mourning weeds and her condition. Yes, said my mother faintly. Miss Trotwood, said the visitor. You have heard of her, I dare say? My mother answered she had had that pleasure, and she had a disagreeable consciousness of not appearing to imply that it had been an overpowering pleasure. "'Now you see her,' said Miss Betsy. My mother bent her head and begged her to walk in. 
They went into the parlour my mother had come from, the fire in the best room on the other side of the passage not being lighted, not having been lighted indeed since my father's funeral. And when they were both seated, and Miss Betsy said nothing, my mother, after vainly trying to restrain herself, began to cry. "'Oh, tut, tut, tut,' said Miss Betsy in a hurry. "'Don't do that. Come, come.' As we've heard and said, David Copperfield has some broad, funny moments. But it also has some quiet, lovely moments of reflection. Most particularly for me, that friendship between Mr. Dick, who's a bit simple, and Dr. Strong, who's a philosopher. And it's one of my favorite parts of the book, that friendship. And you read it with such quiet contemplation. And you're reading it as someone is remembering it, which indeed David is. But at the same time as the narrator, and I mean you, Nick, being the narrator, part of that job as the narrator is to keep moving the story forward. So you're, That's right. you're, you know, you're looking back and moving forward at the same time. Absolutely. No, I couldn't have expressed it better myself. It's, it's fine-tuning there where you imagine the character is telling the story to you and you're channeling that story to the listener. So, yeah, absolutely. You have to serve the story and serve the pace of it. But also, you know, you're, just imagine that you're sitting being told a wonderful story beside a roaring log fire by a really good friend, you know, and that's, that's what you're aiming for. But as you mentioned, that story is told in heightened language with very long sentences that are foreign to a modern ear. Oh, it's foreign to my ear as well. <laughs> well, we have um, modern and, ears. And, <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and not only that, it's, it's, it's quite foreign to your breathing when you've got the beginning of a sentence at the top of the page and the end of it at the bottom with a whole bunch of subordinate clauses in between. And you have to try and get the sense that comes at the end of that sentence. You've you got to know how to breathe. And, and, and we all make mistakes. And I have to say that there comes a time when you get tired in studio and you've got a whole load of word salad in front of you and your mouth has turned to rubber. It can be a very particular kind of hell. Um, but it, the only thing you can do is try not to get too frustrated by it. Take your time, have a drink of water and have another go. <laughs> I don't want to give the impression that you only narrate Dickens or only narrate classics. You also, among many other audiobooks, you also narrate historical romance novels, and you're really quite the heartthrob. I've got some very, very loyal and friendly fans, and this is all thanks, really, to Laura Kinsale, who hunted me down and uh, and engaged me to, to narrate her entire oeuvre, you might say. And from there, you know, it's led on into a nice little genre niche that I really enjoy. I really enjoy doing. Well, you've picked up quite a few audiophile earphone awards along the way with these I books. I don't know where to put them anymore. I've got, I've got drawers <laughs> just brimming over. <laughs> no, which is a lovely, lovely to get a recognition like that. It's a very lonely job doing audiobooks. You know, it's either you on your own or you with one other person. And to know that what you're producing is uh, is hitting in the right place from the outside world is it's very heartening if the author is living do you try to talk to him or her like laura kinsale for example with laura we yeah we talked a lot we uh, she also gave me copious quantities of character notes and various things that would guide me in the right direction i was working with garrick hagan from the story circle for all of her books uh, and he was producing with me. So between Garrick and myself, we would open up a dialogue with Laura when we had questions, and if she wanted to contribute something, she would. But then there comes a point where you have to knuckle down and, and start recording. 
Of course, we'd start off by sending samples to see if we're going in the right direction, and if that needed fine-tuning, we'd fine-tune it, and then we'd, we'd continue. And then thereafter, it really became a trust exercise for Laura to trust us with her work, and, you know, she was happy, so what can I say? Well, clearly she was very happy because she started an audiobook company, and she publishes audiobooks not only of her own work, but also that of other authors. And you're the voice for the whole thing. That's right. Uh, Hedgehog Inc. it is. And uh, working with uh, Beth Kingston, uh, amongst others. I was going to ask about Elizabeth Kingston because you've narrated her series, The Welsh Blades. And I'm curious about what goes into narrating a series that's moving through multiple books, that's moving over time, characters are aging. Yes. There's just so much going on that you have to keep track of. I mean, Dickens is hard. There's a lot going on, but it's one book. This is, she's written three, and she's in the midst of her fourth. Absolutely. And again, you know, uh, I was in close contact with Elizabeth as well for that series of books and the character notes that she provided. A lot of the time they help, and she'll also give you a little warning because, you know, you only get one script at a time. You don't know what's happening further down the line in volume three, four, five or whatever. So those notes are really important. If you haven't had time to read the whole lot, all of the books, she'll say who's, which character's coming up and who, who's going to be focused on and what's going to happen. So it gives you a little bit of a heads up, which is vital. I am Alfred Brandt, said the man at his side, and looked at him expectantly. Names. This was conversation. This was how people spoke to one another when they met. He remembered it. It shouldn't be so hard to do. Griffith, he said without thinking, swallowing the ap Yorworth in time. But it was too late. His name was enough. You are Welsh? It was no crime only to be Welsh. Not here, anyway. So he said, I, born of a Welshman, I'm called Griff, just Griff. Well met, Griff, and God give you good morrow. There's a priory ahead not two miles. They'll bury our dead and care for Sir Gerald, he said with a nod toward the injured knight. And for you, do you come with us? This brings me to accents, because they certainly exist in the Welsh Blade series. And certainly there's a ton of accents throughout Dickens. And you really, you really nail these. You're a wonder how, when, where did you learn to do that? Gosh, well, I hope I nail them. I'm sure I don't nail all of them. And I would imagine that any native speaker would probably bring me up on, <laughs> on some of the ones that might have been slightly wide of the mark. But yeah, I have had a, uh, always had a facility to to do accents and, and impersonations and character voices and so on. And that's something I, I suppose I was born with. But it's also something that, you know, over time you, you hone and with any luck increase your, your skill set. I mean, approaching accents that I'm not too familiar with for the first time. Uh, recently, I've had to do something which has required a, a Cajun Bayou accent. And <laughs> I am about as far from that as you can get. Reference files can help, you know, I listen to stuff on YouTube or, or whatever else and, and try and nail it. Um, but again, it's it's more to do with the character rather than the accent. If you're concentrating too much on the accent, you're doing a disservice to the character. When did you first start to act? Oh, well, before living memory, I think. <laughs> um, first, first memories of it when I was about six years old at school. But I mean, I, I wanted to be an actor. I think I, I formulated the idea properly in my head when I was about 11 that I was going to be an actor. And kind of made it happen, I think. And you went to drama school? 
That's right. I went to the Guildhall in London, Guildhall School of Music and Drama. Three-year course there with a wonderful chap called Sean Cotter who taught radio and, and that, that area of the arts, which led me to the BBC, uh, who every year have a competition called the Carlton Hobbs Award, and I won it that year. And that, in those days, it was uh, a bursary award where you would get a, a seven-month contract, you and, a, and another student boy and a girl would get a contract so you'd start off in in BBC radio which is what happened to me so you began with your voice yes and how did you move into audiobook narration nick ooh good question i wonder what the first one was uh it's a while ago um i think somebody just put it in front of me and said would you consider doing one of these and 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 i looked and i thought what what read the whole book <laughs> And I have to say, I went a bit pale and my knees shook a little bit. I thought, well, you know, it's good to have the work. I'll give it a go. And we went from there, really. It's a tough one because starting any audiobook is is a real kind of psychological challenge when you have a wall of words that you have to wade through. And, you know, wade, you don't wade through a wall. Sorry, mixing my metaphors. Climb over or whatever. Anyway, suffice to say, there are a lot of words. And, and you know, it's it's tough, but you just take it day by day. And, and eventually you'll get there. You literally do it all. You're, you do theater, film, television, radio plays, audiobooks. Sure. You're the voice in any number of video games. And yeah. clearly, to make a living as an actor, you need to be as diverse as possible. Absolutely, especially now. Especially now. But I wonder how they feed one another, how your time in the booth can help you on the stage, your time on the stage can help you as a character in a video game, if they do. That's a good question. I've never really thought about it, to be honest. I'm sure there is kind of cross-pollination um, when you're either performing, playing a character on stage, or you see somebody else playing a fantastic character on stage, and you think, well, maybe I'll steal that and, and use it for a character that comes up in a book. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that I've got a, a, a pocket full of instant characters that I just throw. Occasionally, yes, I do. And you think, well, here's this this person who's just appeared, popped up from nowhere, some farmer with a pitchfork. I'll give him accent 32B and uh, uh, <laughs> and, and, and a beard and, and hope that works. So, yeah, there is some kind of cross-pollination, cross-referencing, although I, I'm not too aware of it, to be honest. But coming from theater and being in the and still being in theater, which is so collaborative, you mentioned, you know, feeling isolated in the recording booth. And I'm just curious about how else acting with your voice is different than having that physicality to use to create a character. Well, I think for one thing, voice acting, whether it's radio drama, audiobooks, video games, or whatever, is uh, it's a much more intimate process. You have a lot less that you can hide behind. Uh, if someone's not telling the truth on stage or on screen, they can do stuff to maybe, you know, make it look like they are. If it's purely the voice, if you, you can hear when somebody is not committing to something or when they're maybe telling a fib, you can hear it in the voice first. So in, in that respect, it's great. I, I love the art. It's, it's rewarding if you manage to get it right. And it's extremely frustrating if you don't. Well, you voiced a number of video games, big video games, Dragon Age 2, the voice of the male hawk. <laughs> Voicing video games used to be on the margins of acting no more. That ship has long sailed. Absolutely. Yeah, actors are happy to do it. But I wonder, again, how you find the voice of a character in a video game because it's interactive, so it has to be different from narrating an audiobook and I'm, I just would love to have you walk me through that. 
It's a lot more clinical. You have the games developers who have got a very clear idea of, of the characters that they want and they cast accordingly. Sometimes, you know, you may be just cast in one character and then it's fairly straightforward. You've, you've done an audition, they've gone, we like that, and, and you, you do that. Then there are other times, for example, you know, you mentioned Dragon Age. I was playing the protagonist, Hawk, the male protagonist. Joe uh, Wiley was playing the female protagonist. And that was oh, 90 hours in studio, something like that. But just to keep me sane, Caroline Livingston, who was directing all the voice acting, would throw me in a few different characters, fun ones on the side that I could, you know, have a go at. And you make your decisions. I mean, you've got to work fast. That's the main thing. And I suppose I had one of the best kind of places to learn that. And that was on the BBC Radio Drama Company, where for seven months I was doing several plays a week, playing leads and supporting characters and extras and all sorts. And in those situations, you pick up a script... You look at the character, you, under, you, you get, try to understand it, and you make a decision fast and commit to it. And hopefully it's the right decision. If it's not, the director will let you know, I'm sure. So I'm, I'm certainly applying that to my work in video games. You know, you have to work fast. You've got to go with your instincts, be open to them, and, uh, and commit to it. And um, I assume, and I know nothing, so tell me if I'm wrong, that... When you're narrating video games, it is like audiobooks in the sense you're doing it in isolation. Other people are not there, and it's not a back and forth. That gets mixed. Yeah, very rarely. Occasionally they might be there, but mostly it's you, although it's less isolating than audiobooks because you're, you're working in when, well, before, before the pandemic, I would go up to London. I'd work at a, a studio called Side uh, in London with um, producers, sound engineers, and, and developers and so on. So, you know, you'd actually see some human beings, which is nice. <laughs> What about with Sherlock Holmes, The Voice of Treason, the drama that you recently did for Audible.com? It was with the full cast, but did you work together or did you work separately? That was done very much like uh, like a radio play, pretty much at, high, at breakneck speed. But we had, you know, five or six people in the booth at the same time recording scenes together. So, yeah, and that's nice. It feels organic when you when you do that, when you're not sort of acting to dead space. I mean, in video games... Often either the character that you're interacting with, your character is interacting with, is either unrecorded completely and you have to leave gaps or they have been recorded and you'll hear them, but there's no organic to and fro. You can't adapt your performance or they can't adapt their performance to you and vice versa because it's already done. So, yeah, in, in that respect, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky, but, you know, with the right script and the right producers, you can come much closer to an organic uh, performance. I'm not going to ask if you have any favorite books that you've narrated, but I wonder, do you prefer classics or contemporary work? Well, I mean, I've, as you say, I've run the gamut. Um, Russian 19th century, German 19th century literature, modern classics, uh, historical romance and everything in between. Uh, no, I just, I just take each job as it comes and uh, relish plunging into the world that each one presents and, uh, and with any luck, recreating it for the listeners. Well, as you know, Audiophile Magazine has started a new podcast called Audiobook Break, and we've launched it with your narration of David Copperfield. And we're very excited about presenting it in serial format. Yes, th this is how these books were written, both Dickens Wil and Wilkie Collins. I've recorded a few Wilkie Collins for Naxos as well. All of these books were written uh, in serial form. You'd read a chapter and then you'd be waiting for the next one to arrive in a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month. You know, when you think of all the, the television media that we get, uh, Netflix and the like, 
where you get a box set in one go and the temptation is to sit and binge the whole thing. And the same thing with an audiobook. You can just listen from start to finish if you want to. Maybe it's nice to hold back a little bit and say, OK, here's the cliffhanger. What's going to happen next week? Well, your David Copperfield truly was a comfort as well as a real joy. So thank you so much. That's very nice to hear. Thank you, too. Well, Nick, thank you for giving me your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure, Joe. Thank you. That was actor Nicholas Bolton. He's the narrator of many audiobooks, including The Dead Secret by Wilkie Collins, Desire Lines by Elizabeth Kingston, and of course, David Copperfield by Charles Dickens, published by Naxos Audiobooks. David Copperfield is the first book we're serializing in our new podcast, Audiobook Break. Three times a week, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Audiobook Break will present a new chapter. You can listen throughout the week or catch up with them on the weekend. It's your call. Either way, it's a great way to take a break. An audiobook break. Please subscribe to Audiobook Break wherever you get your podcasts and then leave us a rating on Apple because it really helps people to find us. This has been an extended version of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Make sure you follow Audiophile Magazine on Twitter at Audiophile Mag. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.